That's good to know. So it really says it the whole time. So it's, we should have known it the whole time. All right, Chris, this one's for you because I'm not done. I'm, I'm done with movie metaphors. What's the key to understanding this fine game? <laughs> if you were just to turn this on the TV, what's the key to understanding it? <laughs> the key to understanding this game is I don't even know like how did how does somebody shoot is the lower score is the good score, right? Like if you don't understand that the low score in golf is actually better, right? Then you're walking and think, Ricky, do you know any of those guys? Yeah, I know this is just like a random Google image. Um, if you don't understand that, then you'll watch golf thinking like, oh my gosh, um, how is this is this possible? I got one more, and this is a little bit of a tribute as well, too. Uh, Tim Keller, we know, passed away a couple weeks ago, so I just wanted to throw in a, a, a random Tim Keller quote. Um, Tim Keller says this. This is one of the things that's, that's been really helpful uh, to me. I would say he came out with a book called The Meaning of Marriage maybe about seven or so years ago. And in his book, he talks about the key to like a lasting marriage. Tim Keller talks about the key to a lasting marriage. And he says the key to a lasting marriage is the ability to give love when you are receiving little or none in return. And then Keller says that this will always take a source outside of yourself, right? The ability to give love when you are receiving little or none in return. Because we know this with our spouse, right? There's, it's not always that we're just, you know, that kind of lovey-dovey, romantic googly-eyed looking at one another. There's a lot of times when one spouse is giving a, more love and then the other, there's, there's kind of those competing frames there. And when you, if you have that source that empowers you to give love, right, when you are receiving little or none in return, he said that is the key to a lasting marriage. So why do I talk about these keys? Because when I talk about these keys, one of the things that Jesus is going to do is Jesus is going to give us the key today to understand his parables, okay? He's going to say you have to understand this to understand this parable, to understand parables. Now, we're going to talk about Jesus' first parable in Mark chapter 4. We're kind of going through the book of Mark. And I came across this definition of a parable that I was just so helpful. And I never heard this one before, but I just want to kind of, as we go into Jesus' parable in Mark 4, We'll start with Charles Dodd, and Charles Dodd was kind of a, a preacher from the early, the early 1900s, um, and he says this. He says that a, para, a parable is a metaphor or a simile <coughs> drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its, I love this, vividness or strangeness, right? And leaving the mind in sufficient doubt of its precise application to tease it into active thought. Right? I know it's a little bit of a lengthy definition for parable, but when you kind of put all of those elements that Dodd's talking about here, it's just like, yes, that's exactly what Jesus does when he tells parables. Is he's kind of drawing these metaphors, similes from you know, kind of nature, common life. They're strange. Or they're vivid, and it kind of grabs your attention. It arrests you in some senses, right? And then it kind of leaves you in this sense of like, hmm, doubt, almost confusion, or kind of questioning 
because you don't quite know its precise application. And then it, again, the last phrase, it's going to tease your mind into really engaging it, right? So this is what a parable is, this metaphor or simile, right? It's, a, again, a long definition, but when you kind of link all the elements of Dodd's kind of definition together, it's like, yes, that's, those are the steps of a parable, like the, the, the elements of a parable, okay? So let's read this parable. This is the parable of the sower. And this is in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. If you got one of the regular Bibles, it's on page 700. Or if you want to read it on your phone. And uh, yeah, we'll read it in the round. So let me get it going and, and then, you know, maybe this is a little bit of a longer one. So if you wanted to take two verses or three verses. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake. While all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching, he says... Some seed fell amongst the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on some good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, Who has ears to hear, let him hear. No, you you're good. Yeah. Keep going, Wendy. Don't let don't let him don't let the man bring you down. of wealth 
and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some thirty, some sixty, some hundred times what was sown. Good, thank you, thank you. Um, okay, Jesus says, again, in my beautiful drawing here of a key, the beautiful drawing, Jesus says what? He says, you got to understand this parable to understand the parables, right? If you don't understand this parable, um, like how are you going to understand any parables, right? So I would say that there's four things. And again, I, you know, Wendy, you were just reading and that, that last, the, the seed that's kind of sown among the thorns, uh, the, deceitfulness of, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things, the worries of this life. I'm like, jeez, i got to do a whole sermon on that one too. There's so many additional sermons that are kind of within this one. But uh, for what I was thinking with this passage, at least this go-around, let's talk about like four things you got to understand about this parable, right? Four things you got to understand about this parable. So the first one, right? Because again, if we understand this parable, if we understand what this parable is doing, then it'll help us understand more parables. The first one I think is this, and this one is a little bit, um, this one would be interesting to talk about. Uh, parables divide, right? Parables divide. And, you know, just that kind of statement alone, it, it really might make you uncomfortable, right? It kind of sometimes grinds against our modern Western sensibilities, um, especially in a world, we live in a world with so much division, don't we, Right? And we are looking for Jesus, actually we're looking for Jesus to bring people together, to unite people, um, to, to kind of call one another together. Um, but Jesus in this parable is saying like, like the, it's just, there's just division in this world, right? Parables by their very nature divide. And what happens is in our normal mode of thinking, right? In our normal mode of thinking, um, we, we have this, we, we say, okay, parables are going to divide, and then there's the insiders and there's the outsiders, right? This is what Jesus is kind of talking about. And we think about those inside the church, right? And then we do think about the outsiders, which is not a movie reference, although it was a movie, it was a book reference first. Anybody want to give a recap on the outsiders? Um, but we think, about, we think about this division between the insiders and the outsiders, right? And we are, again, we're questioning like, okay, God, you love the whole world. You have this cosmic dimension of grace and mercy. How many, how can your parables divide? And what you have to pay attention to when, when we talk about Jesus's parables dividing is that, um, I'll put it like this. Uh, this is from, from Tim Gombas, right? What we think, the people who we are going to encounter in Mark who think they're the insiders, are actually the outsiders. And those who you would consider as outsiders are actually the insiders, right? So Gombas will say it like this in his commentary. He says, again, characters who are assumed to be outsiders, right? As you read Mark, and we're going to read Mark, surprisingly demonstrate their insider status by responding to Jesus rightly. While those we suppose are obvious insiders we're going to watch them grow increasingly dull in their understanding, right? Let me give you a couple examples if this first part doesn't make sense to you. Think about the way that people respond to Jesus. People who are demon-possessed, 
right, in the book of Mark. Uh, women, Gentiles, right? You have Jesus encountering specific um, ethnic groups, Greeks and Romans, right? You have people who are uh, deformed, whether that's, uh, um, I'm trying to think, Mark, uh, the withered hand, and then you also have the guy who's paralyzed, right? You have the people who are deformed, right? You have children, right? All of those people, especially in the ancient Near East, we would consider them as what? Outsiders, right? And yet they're the ones that, again, respond to Jesus rightly. Meanwhile, all the kind of insiders, the religious teachers, the rulers, the Jews, are the ones who are going to, even the disciples, who grow increasingly dull in their understanding. Jesus gets frustrated with them at one point, Mark 8, and he says, are you still so dull, (laughs) right? And he says this to them, right? So, we, parables are going to divide. They're not going to divide along the lines that we would normally think of, right? So he goes on to say, Jesus's words, right, are meant as a warning to the complacent, or complacent and presumptuous who assume that because their status uh, as, as insiders, they do not need to pay close attention. Jesus wants to make sure they really get the true nature of the kingdom, Gombas would say to everybody sitting in a church, hearing these words, Jesus' words this morning, who have become complacent and presumptuous, we think that we're the insiders, right? And Jesus is warning us this morning, saying, you have to pay attention to this parable. You have to pay attention to what I'm saying here. You have to go study it. You have to go learn from it. You have to go understand it deeply, right? Because... The parables will divide, but we have to be very careful about the lines on which they divide. The ones who are thinking, hey, I'm in, I go to church, I do the good things, I'm a moral person, right? And we think like, hey, I'm the good soil, right? I'm that 30, maybe I'm like a 30 producing, maybe some people are the 60s, but I'm the, we have to be very careful. Just think about that one warning that Jesus gives us. The worries of this life, the desire for other things, and the deceitfulness of wealth. And I guarantee some of that stuff applies to every single person sitting in this room, right? So the parables will divide, but they won't divide along the lines that we normally think of. Second um, thing that I want to talk about here, second thing I want us to understand. This is really helpful for me. Um, When I do my sermons, right? And I keep them in files on my computer. Here's a picture of how they look. Um, I do numbers at the beginning because that just keeps everything in chronological order, right? So the tax man, and there's um, one of them's the document, one of them's a PowerPoint document, PowerPoint. We talked about the Sabbath. We talked about the crowds, the disciples, the Pharisees and the family. This week's uh, teaching is about when I had labeled this sermon, I had labeled it the parable of the soils, right? Soils was my kind of key uh, you know, kind of key word there. And I was reading Dale Bruner's commentary and Dale Bruner makes this great comment where he says, um, he kind of points into Matthew's interpretation of this parable where Jesus says, I want you to listen to what the parable of the what? The sower means, right? And this was, maybe this was kind of what focused my prayer a little bit this morning because our focus and our attention needs in this parable needs to be on God, not the soil, you with me on that? Right? It's a subtle shift as we understand this parable, as we look at this parable. It's a subtle shift that makes a massive difference. I remember I'm sitting at my desk, not at my desk, I was sitting at our counter and I'm typing this sermon out uh, on, I think, Thursday. 
And just kind of where I was sitting, I'm looking out my front window, there's my Subaru, my beautiful blue Subaru that I've had for 13 years now is sitting there. My wife and I kind of share cars as we kind of, you know, do different things. Does anybody else share a car with their spouse? Or you have your own car and like nobody touches its settings. So we, you know, you, you will, we can talk, you know, speaking of the key to a good marriage is when you leave a car, you return the settings to their, their previously established. Um, you know, like when you get into a car and, you know, for me, 6'3", my wife, 5'7", like just, you know, what do you th- is that funny, Johnny? <laughs> you guys, we all know the madness of like, you know, I get into the car and I'm like this in the car and my wife gets into the car and she can't even reach the, you know. And I'm just looking at my Subaru and I'm thinking like, you know, it's a real subtle shift. It's a couple inches in the car, right? But if that seat isn't set at the right depth, the right, you know, kind of distance, like either she's not even able to touch the gas pedals or I'm not even able to get my legs into the car, right? And again, just sitting there at my desk, just a real simple analogy. Um, it's arresting your attention right now, my parable, and it's just provoke teasing your thought no just kidding um and so this it, what's interesting about the sower and the farmer is again this was really helpful for me to turn my attention in this parable to the sower not necessarily the soil right to the sower now you think about how this here's one thing that's always troubled me right how the sower goes about sowing the so, sowing his seed right which it seems like he's just throwing it everywhere, right? It's on the path, it's in rocky places, there's weeds, there's some good soil. It's just like, man, this guy just doesn't, <coughs> just doesn't know what he's doing, right? But what's, what's so encouraging about this, right? What's so encouraging about this is the way that he does this. Let me, let me say that the, the proper understanding of what the sower is doing here, right? The farmer... <coughs> is that the seed is, is actually Jesus, right? If you were to understand this a lot, if kind of hearers were to hear this in the first century, Jesus would be the seed sown by Yahweh back into Israel, right? This is what the parable is about. I know we think about it and we're going to have this dual understanding where it's <coughs> about me and the gospel message or the kingdom message, But really, the parable is about, think about this, right? Jesus is telling this parable about him being sown back into Israel. And lavishly, generously, he's being sown into all the world. He's being sown into Samaria. He's being sown into Caesarea Philippi. He's being sown amongst uh, the demon-possessed. He's being sown on the other side of the river into the Decapolis, right? Jesus is being sown, his kingdom message, the original understanding would have been his kingdom message being sown into the world. And when you think about, the, so you got to compare it too, right? Because when you think about, the, like, who is this sower just throwing seed all over the place? Compare it to the, how the Pharisees would have sown their seed, right? The Pharisees would have sown their seed to the elite, to the Jews, to, to the proper, Right? The Pharisees would have been, I guess, sparing, cautious, stingy. They would have never sown their seed to Gentiles or to lepers or to sinners. Um, And when you think about the sower, 
is the one who sows the seed. And we sit here this morning because the sower was so lavish, was so generous, was so good with the way that he sowed his seed, right? Um, the, the seed as well too, the word, Jesus says, this is the word, right? John says the word becomes flesh, right? It's a reference to John. Think about Jesus as the seed. Think, think about how seeds operate or seeds, what do they do? They go into the ground, right? What does Jesus do? Jesus kind of dies into the ground and then comes back to life. This passage is all about the sower, Yahweh, sowing Jesus lavishly, generously into, um, into Israel. And then one other thing to, to say about this, right? Because, and let me take a break, because she's into my sermon this morning. I'm feeling it. Baby Ella, I feel you. I know that mom's holding on to you, but I'm feeling the, the, the energy, the sensations you're bringing to me. So um, let me say one other thing about this, this, this kind of point here. There's this dual nature of the parable. Originally, Yahweh sowing Jesus into Israel, into lavishly, generously into Israel, right? That's, I think, the real kind of original understanding they would have encountered it that way. We encounter it, right, almost as like kind of sowing Jesus' gospel message, his kingdom message, the message of God in among the world, right? That's kind of, are you guys out of here? This is break number two. They're going to go to the park? Man, you guys were getting the love. You guys got the, the way. Did he blow you a kiss too? Oh, I thought, I thought he. Um, so there. <laughs> that was uh, the, the commercial break right there. We're good now. There's the dual nature. Jesus, Yahweh's showing Jesus in Israel. There's the, 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 the way that we encounter it today, right? Us kind of sowing the kingdom message, hearing the kingdom message. I think one of the things that's really inspired me about this passage, and again, thinking about the way that God really sows lavishly, generously, um, broadly, um, the example of my life has been um, a young man named Scott Orrell. And Scott's come and preached here. I think most of you guys know him. Um, I started mentoring Scott when he was in sixth grade, right? And it was this group of four young junior high boys. And again, not the best, not the brightest, not the smartest, you know what I mean? But you just are kind of generously sowing the word of God into these boys' lives. Scott, of these young boys, was the one that, you know, in my, all of my junior high pastor expertise and brilliance, I'm like, nah, he's not going to make it. This kid over here, he's the good one. He's the one that's going to make it. And guess what? My buddy Scott is the one who has grown up and who is finishing a, a degree in divinity. He's a pastor. He's a youth pastor. Um, I never would have foreseen him being, so to speak, the good soil, right? But again, as I was really inspired. Like, as we are sharing God's word, the kingdom message, and we're just putting it out there, right? 
You don't know what God's doing behind the scenes. We don't know where God is working in somebody's hearts. You don't know what the way that things are going to work. And so this idea, when I, was, when I first come to this passage, I'm like, man, God, what are you doing? You're like wasting seed all over the place. Come on, you can be smarter about the way that you use seed. And then God showed me, not only is the way that he sows the best way, it's the only way, right? It's the only way. So this passage, again, all about the sower, not about the soil. Two other things. Our primary disposition on this passage, in this, as we enter this passage, is as a listener and as a receiver. In this passage, what are we? What does Jesus compare us to? I stump you on that one? There's the sower and the what? Soil. What are we? In, in most senses, we're just the soil. We're the soil, right? And, you know, <laughs> what, what does soil do? Honestly, what does it do? Huh? It just receives seed. It doesn't do anything, right? It's, it's just simply, I was going to like, I thought about this, and I was just going to like lay down on the ground and just like, that's all soil does. Like, it just kind of lays there. It doesn't really do anything. And when you think about soil, it's really, in some senses, really passive, Right? Jesus says that, or Paul says in Romans, faith comes by hearing, right? Hearing the good news of Christ. How hard is that? If you have two ears at work, right? You can just sit here and hear it. Like you don't have to be. So Dale Brunner says it like this, and this is really challenging for us to think about. He says, truly passive reception becomes truly active righteousness, right? It's a little bit of a paradox here, right? Soil is so passive. It doesn't do anything, right? It's, but yet, in kind of not doing anything, that's the way that righteousness is, is activated in our life, just by being receptive to the sower who's planting the seed. And then he, Bruner calls me out, and he says, church leadership, right? Pastors, churches, are tempted to think that the main service we perform for Christ is to be very busy for him. Let me tell you what our main service is here in this church then and now, is to give opportunities for God to be listened to, right? Listening, listen to this last phrase, will always lead to unfrenetic obedience. Right listening will always lead to unfrenetic obedience, right? My primary job as a pastor is to help people hear God's voice and respond appropriately, right? To listen for God's voice and respond appropriately. I know. I know. It's good. Oh, you don't got to go. I'm just finishing up right now, girl. <laughs> Last thing. Understanding the lack of forgiveness, right? Anybody kind of like trip up when they read this and Jesus says, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven, right? I'm speaking to these people in these parables so that they could be hearing, but I don't want them to understand seeing, but I don't want them to perceive. Otherwise, these people might turn and be forgiven, right? And we're like, wait a second, anybody catch that? Or were you guys just kind of on autopilot a little bit when we got to that verse? Right, let's read it. Let me read it one more time, okay? He's alone, the 12, this is in verse 10. They ask him about the parables, and he says, he says, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, talking to his disciples, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, 
Verse 12, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, what? They might turn and be forgiven, right? Now this, again, really sounds counterintuitive to the message of Jesus. Why would Jesus say that he doesn't want people to be forgiven, right? Why would he say that he doesn't want people to be forgiven? Um, One of the commentaries, uh, David Garland, such a great interpretation of this, and I've struggled with this for a long time. But we have to understand that this passage is rooted in Isaiah 6. We don't probably have time this morning to go do the Isaiah 6 passage and link it all together. In Isaiah 6, right, the prophet Isaiah, he's called to go preach to the people despite the fact that is probably most likely going to make them reject him even more, right? And the passage in Isaiah 6 is full of kind of scorn and irony. Um, I'm trying to think of a situation in where... I, I, I guess maybe if, if we wanted maybe a modern day equivalent, you could think of going to either the Republican or the Democratic convention, right? And you get somebody kind of from the opposite party to go give a speech there, right? So at the Republican National Convention, maybe you'd have, um, you know, maybe an Andrea or, or um, is it Andrea? Ocasio-Cortez, um, not Andrea. Alexandra, sorry. Maybe she would go give this speech there, right? And what would that do to like the Republican base? It would embolden them even more to reject her, right? Or to flip it around, maybe you would have Mike Pence or even Donald Trump go speak at the Democratic National Convention, right? And what would that do? That would like embolden them to reject Donald Trump even more, right? So when Isaiah is going to preach this passage in Isaiah 6, He's going knowing that that what his words are going to be to the people are going to, in some senses, they're going to make him, they're going to, his words are going to make them reject him even more, right? And so the passage that he's giving here is, in Isaiah 6, is has the scorn, has the irony. So what Garland explains is that Jesus is doing the same thing here. He is He's operating in the kind of lineage of the prophetic words, the way that the prophets would speak. And he translates it really, really well here. I like the way that he translates, right? I'm speaking to them in parables. And he says, so that they may indeed see but not perceive. And they may indeed hear but not understand. He says, the last thing that these people want is to turn and have their sins forgiven. So when you read this passage and it comes to this point where it's just like, like, whoa, Jesus, you don't want their sins to be forgiven? You have to read it with almost like that prophetic irony, right? That Jesus is kind of speaking almost ironically here to the people that um, the last thing that as Jesus is, again, his words that divide and that are difficult, speaking to everybody who thinks that they're the insiders, right? Everybody's like, oh, I'm the insider, I'm the insider, right? And Jesus says, actually, you're an outsider, right? And the last thing you really want to do is turn and have your sins forgiven because you probably think that your sins are forgiven and you're good and everything's good. So when Jesus says this kind of last little piece, which again, stumbles people, trips people up, the irony is that he knows his parables are not just going to fall on deaf ears, but on hardened ears, right? Think about when Jesus tells parables like the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, 
the Ten Talents. And it's almost to the point where there was no Jew really that wanted to hear a story of a good Samaritan, right? There was no Jew who wanted to hear a story of a boy who ran away and said, dad, I wish you're dead. And then dad welcomes him back with open arms and throws him a party, right? They don't want, they are not willing, they don't want to have their sins forgiven to make the change, all right? So, Understanding the parable, we're going to talk about, we talked about forgiveness, um, kind of that disposition of our soil is just to be receptive, uh, that parables are going to divide, right? And again, the, the shift from the, the soil to the sower. Some questions to think about with this <coughs> as we finish up. How might this passage help you understand the nature of Jesus's parables? Um, the parables divide. Why, why is this necessary? Is it necessary? How does this shift from the soil to the sower change the tone or the approach of the parable? Uh, how do you practice listening to God? <coughs> and what area of your life have you um, turned and been forgiven? So take a couple of moments to talk about those questions, and then we'll do some discussion. <coughs>